Hello and welcome to Addictions Edited, the February take-home edition. Uh, with me today is Dr. James Morris, who is a research fellow at the Centre for Addictive Behaviours at the Department of Psychology, London South Bank University. He is also the host of the Alcohol Problem podcast. Uh, coming up on today's podcast, we have a roundup of the latest addiction news and research, including uh, topics on alcohol, stigma, cannabis arrests, police discretion... Um, we also have a feature on research into services for pregnant women who use drugs and the impact of Ireland's recent alcohol policies. There is plenty to get through, but first I would like to welcome Dr. James Morris to the podcast. James, it's great to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Uh, it's, it's our pleasure. So James, before we get on to the rest of the podcast, could you just take a moment to talk about some of your recent uh, research and episodes of your uh, of the Alcohol Problem podcast? You've you've recently been focusing on, uh, on stigma and problem recognition among uh, people who who use alcohol but who may not be dependent. Um, why why is this such an important area uh, of discussion within addiction? Yeah, so yeah, in particular, I've been interested in problem recognition amongst uh, harmful drinkers, say, so people that are drinking at a level that's causing them them harm or perhaps others as well. Um, but but harmful drinkers as a group tend to be characterized by not identifying as problem drinkers perhaps because you know drinking is a a big part of their life and they do you know tend to derive benefits from that um and in particular you know i'm interested in how they uh construct that sort of positive drinking identity but how that also might obscure recognition of, of their drinking as problematic um so the kind of experiments that I've done tend to uh, randomize people to conditions where they're given what we call a kind of continuum or spectrum model of thinking about alcohol use and problems so that, you know, it's all mild to severe um, and lots of shades of gray in between uh, versus the kind of more classic binary idea of alcohol problems where um, people tend to think about it as either being an alcoholic or not. And, um, you know, generally people uh, in the kind of spectrum or continuum condition are more likely to recognise their own drinking as potentially problematic um, and less likely to do so when put in uh, or randomised to the kind of disease model or alcoholic condition. Um, And generally, you know, I think stigma is probably playing quite a significant role in there. So, um, we know that alcohol use, have, being seen to have an alcohol problem in the eyes of society is is very heavily stigmatised. Um, so there's a kind of false categorization in, in, in society between kind of so-called normal drinkers and then so-called alcoholics. And uh, people are very aware of um, the stigma, the consequences of being labelled an alcoholic in the eyes of others. So um yeah that's potentially one mechanism in in the way in which the kind of continuum beliefs maybe um break down the stigma a bit as well as just you know a more logical appraisal well if it's a continuum i must be somewhere on it and perhaps that means if i just cut down a bit um that'll bring me some benefits rather than it being a sort of abstinence only route to to recovery so, so I guess in, in kind of terms of those conversations that, that people might have, if you have an open conversation about, you, you know, here's your drinking, what are you doing, what are some of the harms, that you might get some kind of recognition where telling someone that, do you think you're an alcoholic, might actually deter them from thinking about that anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, yeah, in the, in the study where we, we found that, that 
just just mentioning the term alcoholic did re- result in lower problem recognition or um that that that, that probably invokes a, a kind of threat to the person's identity that that they don't see themselves as uh you know as as, as someone having an addiction or having alcoholism so to speak um so that understandably you know invokes a kind of defensive response whereas as we know through motivational interviewing and kind of non-judgmental approaches more open questions that don't label or um uh, place what sort of or allow the person to feel judged in any way are much more conducive to um resolving ambivalence and behavior change and recovery etc I was going to say that uh, kind of reminded me of the motivational interviewing thing, that rolling with resistance rather than kind of confronting people, just kind of having that open conversation and trying not to kind of embed people in their kind of in defensiveness, I suppose, helping people out of that. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, and I, I guess the so there's there's that there's that kind of identity threat side to it. But there's also just, you know, people are so um, perhaps uh easily caught up in the kind of social norms around heavy drinking um harmful drinkers are likely to be socializing with other people that uh, drink the same amounts as them so there's that kind of normative misperception aspect of it so yeah just finding ways to um trigger some kind of contemplation where the thought process isn't am i an alcoholic or not but are there potentially benefits from cutting down my alcohol use and how might i go about it uh, are going to be potentially valuable and you know brief interventions are one evidence-based example of that dry january might be another way another route into people kind of thinking a bit differently and re-evaluating their relationship with alcohol um as well as you know perhaps other ways of kind of promoting a more continuum idea i guess the adrian charles documentary i think was good in that sense that he um even though did speak to people who were kind of AA attendees and self-identified as alcoholics. He also spoke to other people who had had success in cutting down, and that was something he kind of came to the conclusion he'd do at the end of the the show as well. Um, it's fantastic. It's a fascinating area, um, and so, I mean, if people want to to hear more, this is you talk a lot about this on your on the podcast. We'll put a link to that in the in the. Um, in the notes on this podcast and also your most recent um publication the alcoholic other harmful drinkers resist problem recognition to manage identity threat which was in addictive behaviors august uh 2021 um which i i I just want to i was you actually have a a p-value of exactly (laughs) 0.050 Yeah, yeah. I, I felt so sorry for you. Yeah, that, that was the um, one of the ma- the main effects. So, yeah, there was a, a fair bit of discussion with my co-authors about exactly how to phrase the uh, you know I think <laughs> approached but did not reach statistical significance is what we settled on. Oh, I, it, you know, um, yeah, yeah, just my, yeah. Si- my sympathy. But, but yeah, the, the podcast, the alcohol problem podcast, you know, is um, something that I. I just wanted to do to try and um, have some of those conversations to talk to people to potentially um, give people access to different ideas or um, experiences of alcohol use problems that maybe are less heard than the kind of more common or stereotypical narratives um, and potentially in turn reduce stigma so um, yeah I'm really enjoying it and uh, of course if people want to check that out please do 
Uh, fantastic. We can thoroughly recommend it. Um, okay, thanks, Jay. Um, there were more on uh, on alcohol and harmful drinking uh, later in the uh, podcast. Um, but before we get there, I'd just like to welcome Dr. Caroline Getty again from the Addiction Newsroom. Uh, Carol, uh, welcome again to the podcast um, and from the Addiction Journal Newsroom. Um, what have you got for us today? Thank you, Rob. Yeah, so at the um, Addiction Newsroom just recently, we reported uh, some figures from the CDC around opioid overdose deaths in the States. So between April 2020 to 2021, more than 100,000 people died from drug overdoses in the US. And New York State has taken a very progressive and pragmatic response to this, uh, well, a huge problem. So they have become the first US city to open authorised injection sites for people who use drugs. So they've opened up two sites, uh, one in East Harlem and one in Washington Heights that offer clean injecting equipment and signposting for people who are seeking treatment. Um, And they're also equipped uh, with naloxone to to administer naloxone in the event of an overdose. And I just recently read a report that says um, that 76 overdoses have actually been reversed since the the sites opened in uh, November uh, 2021. It's it's amazing to get kind of that that level of detail on the impact of of something like that. Yes, I think it just just adds to support, doesn't it, for safe injection facilities. And and I don't know, we we might see in the near future more getting rolled out across the state and and other states within the US. So we'll be... uh, keeping an eye out for that. Mm. I, I remember I remember when I started working on it, uh, sorry, I remember when I started working on a, uh, addiction news, and like most, most stories are kind of um, came in by themselves, but the US um, opioid use, opioid overdoses and interventions to try and address this, just there are so many angles, so many different stories that all point towards this, this same thing. And it's such a complex situation. Um, endlessly fascinating and just so important like you say yeah and then just staying with um with new york's uh city so they have actually just recently installed uh naloxone dispensing vending machines which is a uh, super progressive i mean um they have uh, the public health officials have called for uh, proposals to install at least 10 what they call public health vending machines uh, across neighborhoods um in new york city uh, to help illicit drug users um, access naloxone in the event of, of overdoses. So is it just a naloxone that are in the vending machines? Are they are they kind of safer injecting equipment or anything? Because I know there was some in Canada a while ago that, that, that did this. You're right, yeah. So so they call them naloxone dispensing vending machines, but within these, you can, uh, you know, drug user, users will also be able to access clean syringes. Um, and I, I'm not sure the extent to, to other services that will be provided within that but i know that clean syringes and needles and naloxone will be will be made available fantastic um so they're, they're the two main stories uh and there are there some some other headlines that that ran past your desk yeah i wanted also to mention that um united arab emirates uh, have relaxed their drug laws which is um i mean they're, they're definitely known for handing out uh lengthy jail terms for people caught dealing or transporting illicit substances but they have eased some of their harsh drug laws around around cannabis so people who are traveling into the into the country who arrive with cannabis products um will will no longer face um imprisonment instead their their goods will be confiscated and uh, destroyed if it's their first offense 
But uh, some other headliners that I wanted to mention. So Malta has just recently approved a bill to legalise cannabis for recreational use. Um, so adults will be permitted to cultivate and possess up to seven grams of cannabis for personal use. Um, and then just one other story I wanted to, to draw attention to was that the minimum unit pricing laws have uh, come into effect in Ireland. So the aim of this, of course, is to minimise excessive alcohol consumption and deter binge drinking. Yes, and we have a feature on um, Ireland's uh, alcohol policy uh, coming up a little bit later in the programme. That includes the uh, minimum unit pricing um, intervention. Um, Carol, thank you so much for the, for the roundup from the Addiction Journal newsroom. That's uh, updated every week on the Addiction Journal website. Again, we'll put, put a link in, uh, in the footnotes to this podcast, to that site. Uh, definitely well worth checking out. Um, uh, James, uh, which which bits of addiction news uh, piqued your interest this week? Well, just uh, yesterday, um, there was a a couple of um, uh, reports around kind of new figures on hazardous and harmful drinking during lockdown reporting. You know, the headlines were sort of saying millions drinking at hazardous and harmful levels. Some of them were. And... Um, well, that was the case before lockdown, but there is evidence that amongst heavier drinkers and people with pre-existing mental health problems or people drinking for uh, kind of coping reasons, that, that drinking has off, has generally increased amongst those groups, although it might have remained the same or even decreased amongst the kind of larger population of, of lower risk drinkers. Um, but but the, the reporting of it's been interesting Um obviously kind of playing to the idea that sort of everybody is drinking much more which as I say is not necessarily true but there are important messages in there in the sense that um, yeah of course we we still need more investment in alcohol treatment services um, for people that are developing more serious problems including dependency um, but the, I suppose what was interesting for me is you know that these these kind of news articles tend to report hazardous or harmful, perhaps increasing in high-risk drinking. Um, but they're just not really terms that I think the public really understand um, or really relate to or would necessarily consider those drinking patterns problematic if they are in those groups. Um, so I suppose it goes back to my earlier point around uh, how can we kind of frame the conversation a bit more so that uh, um, people are not just sort of pointing to other kind of people who are drinking more heavily than they are but perhaps recognizing that they might fall somewhere on the on the spectrum do, do like public health um kind of events i mean we're, you know we're just at the by the time this goes out we'll just have finished dry january which which raises awareness of of drinking among lots of people not just kind of um uh, hazardous or harmful drinkers do, do kind of large scale public health um campaigns or events like that uh, do they have any impact on people's um, patterns of drinking? Are they are they the kind of thing that might help? Well, the evidence is still relatively emerging around dry January, but there's definitely some good evidence that um, I think certainly a good proportion of people uh, do sustain reduced drinking after having done a dry month because obviously, you know, the big criticism or, or kind of not criticism but concern maybe is that people view it as a, a kind of a month off a detox and then just return to uh, kind of previous levels of, of heavy drinking. Um, I mean, there are other criticisms like 
that the people who tend to take part are people with less serious alcohol issues. Um, but then on the other hand, it's not targeted at people who might be alcohol dependent, particularly those of physical dependence where it, you know, it'd be dangerous for them to potentially stop drinking on their own without uh, medical support. Um, so yeah, as always, it's, it's incredibly complicated. I think it's good that it raises the com raises awareness and increases discussion. Um, obviously how those discussions take place is important um you know there's there's far less evidence for say just when they introduced the new recommended drinking guidelines in 2016 or revised them um you know there was a bit of increased awareness around that um as a result of the kind of media coverage but no uh effect appeared uh, in terms of drinking behaviours. So, um, you know, it's complicated. But, yeah, certainly the idea that just raising awareness of drinking guidelines or risk levels on its own um, affects behaviour, I'd say I'd, uh, approach that with extreme caution. But things like January, where you actually are getting the chance to um, change some behaviours and really reflect on it and think about kind of the reasons why you drink and maybe your kind of triggers or alternatives those things are obviously more likely to have a, a positive effect. Thank you. I mean, I, I think those things are always interesting when you, it's like the population health thing, isn't it? You get the headlines that say everyone's drinking more and it's it's not, it's a, you know, it's, it's a large subsection of the population and actually there are different influences and different outcomes for, you know, very high risk drinkers or harmful or hazardous drinkers or um, whatever. And actually splitting those things up can often be more instructive in, in, in what you might like to do in terms of uh, policy or treatment. Um, okay. Uh, well, the, the the news that that, that really, uh, I mean, this uh, lots of people were talking about this online, which was uh, that Sadiq Khan or the Mayor of London has uh, is going to pilot um, a diversion scheme, really, uh, where young people aged between I think eighteen and twenty five are going to be diverted to uh, support or treatment or counselling. Um, if they are found with in possession of Class B drugs, so rather than kind of face arrest and criminal justice, they're going to be diverted into treatment, which is which is which is good, is to be applauded. You know, if we can avoid giving people criminal criminal records for possession of Class B drugs, and I think uh, the press particularly picked up on on cannabis for this. Um, but it, it's one of those, you know, it's one of those kind of um, depressingly optimistic. Um, pieces of news where you think you know this is great, but uh, but it is a is a relatively small step, and we'd we'd want to see more. Um, okay, so uh, that's our news roundup, and like I said, uh, more more news available on Addiction News website on the SSA website, um, and obviously visit uh, James's Alcohol Podcast as well. So we're now going to hear um, from uh, Nathan Critchlow in an interview with his research on alcohol policy in Ireland, which we've mentioned before. Um, over to you, Nathan. Principally, um, the research I'm conducting at the moment is uh, focused on the advertising controls. Um, and principally, this is limiting where and how often um, alcohol advertising can appear in various places. The, the legislation in Ireland is really wide ranging. It contains measures um, all the way from minimum unit pricing to where advertising can be placed, um, where alcohol can be placed and how visible it can be in the retail um, sector, and we kind of use some price promotions. Um, but the parts of it that I'm specifically looking at are the advertising placement restrictions. So that would be, for example, they have a restriction on uh, having alcohol advertising on public transport, 
having any alcohol advertising outdoor near youth orientated environments so for example around schools etc um, and they've also implemented a restriction on some degrees of cinema advertising so it's only allowed now if the film itself has a um, classification for 18 plus or if the advertising is part of a, a licensed premises in a cinema i.e the kind of part where they sell alcohol so there you are you're you're, you're well placed um there's this, this wonderful opportunity to um identify changes in in alcohol and awareness of advertising before the act was passed and after it was implemented um and then right in the middle of that covid turned up um how will you um how can you start unpicking the impact of uh the global pandemic uh and the impact of the legislation yeah you're right when i was uh when we were planning this study and particularly when i uh, started my fellowship um the pandemic wasn't something that we were we were prepared necessarily to to deal with um i think in terms of being able to unpick the the relative impact of the legislation and the relative impact of a pandemic, we can do two things. The first is that we're really lucky to live in such an information-dominated world at the moment, and there's a lot of extant literature out there that we were able to draw upon to try and understand what what impact the pandemic might also have had. So, for example, there was Google mobility data that was showing, um, you know, how often people were using public transport, how often were they visiting, visiting um, urban environments, etc. And we were able to, you know, we we're able to triangulate that evidence as well with the estimates of marketing awareness we were getting from the surveys. And we can see that clearly if people are using public transport less, then that's actually more likely to, that's obviously going to also be a contributing factor to the uh, declines in awareness that we saw. That said, the legislation still happens, so it's likely to be a combination of the two things happening um, together at the same time. So the other thing that we're looking to do is, uh, the other thing that we're going to be doing, sorry, is conducting further follow-up waves. So over time, as we collect data at future points where COVID restrictions um, are either lessened or not the same as they were at the point where we conducted the wave two, we'll then be able to look at, well, what happens to marketing awareness at that point? Does it spring back up? If it does spring back up, does it return basically to the 2019 levels or does it decline further or does it kind of come to a halfway house? So at the moment, with the data that we've um, recently published, we're very much going with precaution being the watchword. We can be relatively sure that both of these things have had an impact to some degree. So, for example, even though people were using less public transport, the alcohol advertising physically came off public transport. So it's likely that they both did, but we're not going to attribute a level of contribution of either of those factors until we kind of get further down the line and we have future follow-up waves of data that help us understand that a little bit more. So, I mean, this this relates to the uh, to the news that you were talking about, James, with uh, the impact of uh, of COVID and lockdown on on alcohol use, and just that kind of nothing happens in a vacuum, does it? You know, you, you might think that that coronavirus or lockdowns have, have influenced this, but but then there are changes in alcohol policy, changes in availability, and and also trying to pick apart whether that's because uh, people are no longer at work or because people are drinking at home is 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 really quite tricky. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's a bit like trying to have a sort of nature versus nurture debate when, you know, it's it's a complex interaction of the two. Um, yeah, absolutely. Our environment massively influences our behaviour and pricing, advertising and availability are the kind of three big um, population or policy level determinants. Um, but yeah, 
you know the arguments against minimum pricing or trying to convince someone that that it works is often met with a kind of um, oh, but that won't stop uh, you know Bob, who's you know seriously alcohol dependent, um, but because you know there's a kind of uh, you know focus on the individual, and um, you know I'm aware that some of my research maybe focuses very much on how individuals make sense of alcohol problems, but that doesn't happen in the vacuum either. You know, we draw on our understandings and our language from the common representations from what plays out in society through media and policy and TV shows, etc. So yeah, it's all very complex and very interactional, but yeah, the policy stuff and the, the news about Ireland um, and its minimum price and other policies are, you know, really good news and really important. And um, yeah, brilliant that, that we have people like uh, Nathan doing these studies, trying to wrestle with all its complexities. Yeah, um, it's like everyone knows a Bob, don't they? It's like it doesn't matter how much research you, you do. If, if someone knows a Bob who 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 didn't live to a hundred and whatever. Uh, yeah yeah and I, I was i was i was kind of looking into this the other day actually it's one of, it's one of those kind of science communication uh, irritations is that the most important evidence for researchers is kind of systematic reviews and meta-analyses and and for the most majority of the populations there's nothing more boring than that but you mm. get a story about bob and and that really resonates with people um uh yeah, yeah i don't know yeah it's another challenge isn't it it is and, and again that goes back to the messages you know guidelines or statistics about risk uh do not resonate with people but but lived experience and and stories about uh pe- people's lives absolutely do resonate so yeah we have to have to be aware of that when we're thinking about how to um kind of change opinion or or kind of get people thinking about ch- change or behavior change um absolutely okay so uh next section So which researchers um, have you found uh, in the past month? Let's start with you this time, uh, James. So I wanted to talk about a new book that's come out called Evaluating the Brain Disease Model of Addiction. And this is published by Routledge. I never know how to say that. Routledge, I think it is. And uh, the book is divided into three main parts. So there's a uh, a series of chapters arguing for the brain disease model of addiction, um, a a series of chapters arguing against the brain disease model of addiction, and a series of chapters arguing, uh, well, uh, who are in the unsure camp, let's say, um, plus some um, editors' comments on uh, on each each of the sections and a conclusion and um, I've got a chapter in the against on the basis that uh, I think you know kind of generally brain disease model attributions um, have complex stigma effects but on the whole um, probably heightened stigma in, if you kind of balance out all the different complex ways that, that stigma interacts or, or can be assessed um so so yeah i'm not necessarily commenting on on the scientific aspect of whether it is or isn't a a brain disease um even though i obviously have my own opinions on that but yeah in terms of the consequences of how people see it obviously some people choose to uh 
see addiction or alcohol problems via a disease model that can be very helpful for some people it really makes it very clear and it can alleviate blame in in some ways that you know if it's a disease it's not your fault so to speak um but then there's the other side of it that people are more likely to see you as a kind of diseased other as fundamentally different and there's some complex effects on that in terms of you know consequences for how people think that might affect recovery for instance being powerless you know it might work for some people but for other people that might be um, you know work against their kind of recovery or, or kind of goals yeah it's a fascinating area uh, carol you um you organize a module is it is it um is it bsc or msc it's a bsc psychology course at king's yeah uh, how do how do people there kind of react to the uh, kind of brain models or the um, kind of environment models of addiction? <clears throat> it's really interesting you asked that actually. I was just uh, running a seminar this morning on um, the brain disease model of addiction and we were looking at uh, its implications for policy and practice and, and discussing why it has been so controversial. Um, I think the, the, the way it's received, the students, uh, as you know, as Jim said, some people like the model as, as it's very you know, clearly defined and, and, and provides that explanation that maybe people find um, gives them a, a clear understanding of, of addiction and, and the maintenance of, of addictive behaviours. Um, and I think the students like that, but they also, it's a psychology degree, so they're very aware of the psychological theories and models and concepts of, uh, of addiction. So they, um, they, they struggle to conceptualise addiction when we have these I don't want to always say competing models because they're not always competing, but a, a broad range of ways of, of considering addiction. So, um, but it definitely gets gets them talking, especially whenever we we uh, we have a look at Wayne Hall's critique of the brain disease model and and pull that apart. I think one of those key skills in this area is developing the ability to hold conflicting definitions and concepts about addiction as as true and not true at the same time, um, uh, and and just to kind of somehow get on with your life holding those things yeah because i think the ten the the tendency is to to say well if you accept one model or one theory then it must mean that you're rejecting the other uh perspectives um, but i think what's important for the students to understand is that we need to have this uh amalgamated understanding of, of addiction and um yeah we'll say no more about that but <laughs> it's about appreciating what all the theories and models bring to the table fantastic um and which uh which research uh, are you? Uh, uh, I've got. A, I, it's like I've run out of ways of saying. Caught your eye, bring to the table, piqued your interest. Uh, what research did you find this uh, this month, Carol? Uh, so a paper that has been recently published in the Addiction Journal by Dunlop and colleagues um, from New South Wales in Australia. Um, their paper is entitled "Treatment of Opioid Dependence with Depobuprenorphine and Custodial Settings." Um, so what they did within that is they they assessed the safety of slow release um, Depobuprenorphine among inmates in a prison in New South Wales. Um, this caught my attention because we know that uh, injected drug use and syringe sharing during incarceration is a not just a problem obviously in Australia, but it's a global issue. Uh, people who are incarcerated you know, tend to have complex health problems and comorbidities, including substance use disorder. And buprenorphine, which is a, an opiate um, agonist treatment, is effective in reducing drug use and mortality. However, its use within prison settings is limited. 
for, for a number of different reasons that they that Dunlop and colleagues go into in the paper, um, but mainly around concerns of diversion. Um, so a potential solution that they suggest um, is long-lasting injectable depobuprofen that would be administered subcutaneously, weekly or monthly. So within this work, they um, recruited 67 men and women uh, with a diagnosis of opioid use disorder. So patients with um, um, opioid agonist treatment were recruited and they were offered depobuprofen. Patients who were stable on oral methadone were then recruited into the comparison arm. Um, and what they found was quite interesting, actually. So they so they reported that retention, firstly, in depobuprofen treatment was as high as 92%, um, which is amazing. I mean, a few people dropped out for a range of different reasons, but it's all documented in the paper, so you can have a look at it. Uh, worth noting also, 94% of patients reported at least one adverse event, uh, but typically these were mild, so constipation, injection site, uh, pain, headache, vomiting. Um, and then they, they measured diversion of OST um, and they did this in two ways, which is quite interesting. So so they asked people um, if they were aware, so whether whether they were aware of diversion being an issue within, within prison settings and then also asked them if they themselves have ever diverted uh, OST. So at baseline, they, they find that 17% of the overall sample reported that they had diverted OST while being incarcerated. Um, and at the end of the trial, no diversion was identified, which I guess is not it's not surprising given it's a depot subcutaneous treatment. Uh, but yeah, worth reporting that. And, and also they looked at um, self-reported non-prescribed opioid use um, among patients with, uh, who were given the depot buprenorphine. And from baseline, which was 97% um, drug use, non-prescribed opioid drug use, dropped right down to 12% uh, after... Um, 16 weeks. So I think overall, you know, they suggest that, of course, there's benefits of injectable depobuprofen within custody settings. Um, and the, the effects can be, the benefits and effects can be comparable to those observed within community settings. And, and pretty much they suggest that it should be considered as a safe, as a safe um, way of way of treating people with opioid use disorder within custodial settings, especially for people who are not stable on methadone or for people who would otherwise not receive any treatment. Yeah, I mean, long-acting buprenorphine, it's uh, it's been never far away from the the, the, the kind of headlines and research uh, agendas over the over the past couple of years, uh, and certainly something that we're planning to, to look at a bit more closely on uh, the SSA website soon. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you, Carol. Um, the article I found was from Harm Reduction Journal, which was uh, Police Discretion in Encounters with People Who Use Drugs, Operationalising the Theory of Planned Behaviour by Brandon Del Pozo and colleagues. Um, and partly because oh, anything with the theory of planned behaviour, I'm a slight fan of just because it's such, <laughs> I, I love it. I mean, it's a theory that says, this theory of planned behaviour that doesn't need much more explanation than than its title. <laughs> you know, the things that people plan to do, they probably will. Uh, it's it's more, I'm going to attract the ire of, um, of model purists there. Um, but it, it, uh, I, I, I highlighted this one because it, it matches up with the planned diversionary programmes um, that the Mayor of London was suggesting. Um, and anyway, the article uh, talks about the different characteristics or social norms or influences on police officers when, this is in the US, when um, uh, encountering people who use drugs and whether they they arrest or whether they refer people to support or whether, you know, for different um for different uh, offences, including uh, possession of a syringe, which is which is worth bearing in mind. 
um, as part of the US context. Um, and it, I think it's, it's really, really important because it matches in with the whole workforce development thing, which, which I'll, I'll bang on about to anyone who'll listen to me, where, whereby, you know, we have these policies which are that police should refer to somewhere, but, but actually it's, it's not an immediate and direct lever. The police, the police force is made up of people and actually changing their behaviour is very complicated and involves training, it involves social norms, it involves instruction. Uh, and it involves complex organisational structures. Um, and so actually it's it's really important to understand those, to understand how best to get the outcomes you want, rather than just saying, you know, right, OK, well, we're going to divert people now. Or, you know, in the terms of addiction treatment with, with workers there, we're just, you know, just everyone will give naloxone out. It's like, well, actually, that, that takes a lot of work and, and, and understanding to to get the outcome that you want. And the more we know about those levers, um, uh, the better. So it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating study and, and one that's very um, uh, prescient at the moment with what's happening in London. Um, okay, so that's our, our research roundup again. If, we, if you look to the um, SSA website, we're providing uh, monthly reading lists about um, on research relevant to treatment, policy, um, and, uh, and they'll be up on the, on the website another link another link in the appendix of the podcast um okay so we are now going to transfer over to our second feature which is from uh, dr polly radcliffe and emma smith and this was an interview with them about their uh the research they've just started on um services and treatment journeys for um pregnant women who use drugs <laughs> We, um, what we're interested in is the kind of care pathways um, and, and how women who are pregnant and who are dependent on drugs experience the, the care pathways and the services that are provided for them. And actually, although there are, there are lots of um, good practice guidance and, and policies, we don't know very much about uh, kind of nationally what the picture is. We know that the outcomes can be quite different for women in different parts of the UK. So in different places, you know, um, there's, it, there are different rates of removal of babies from uh, at birth, for example, uh, from women who use drugs. And there are different um, kind of treatment protocols for um, you know, uh, babies who may be um, experiencing neonatal abstinence syndrome or withdrawing from drugs that they've been exposed to um, in, in, in utero. So, yeah, we know that there are different patterns of care and different sort of arrangements of services, different ways in which uh, maternity services work with substance use treatment and, and, and um, children's social care, child protection services. And that is very variable across the country. You know, one of the things that we know is that when women have had babies removed in the past, they're more likely uh, not to retain care of, 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 of babies. And, and, you know, that, you know, research shows that there's been, that there's an increasing pattern of, of repeat removals of, of, of babies. Um, from from vulnerable women, um, and and what ideally we need to do is to to create a situation where that that, that these very vulnerable women are not necessarily kind of 
damned by their past behaviors and experiences and that they're that the support can be flexible um, and imaginative enough that that they can be you know you know supported at particular times and um uh, assessed at the point in, at which they are um uh, and and given the support that they they may need you know to to care for their their babies and they might that might mean also that there are different kinds of support that there's a kind of halfway house um between you know that the, there are more mother and baby placements um and, and more supportive environments in which that they can be supported to look after their babies rather than there being this kind of uh the sort of um alternatives of being completely on your own in the community uh you know expected to be this perfect mother you know dealing with all the others other um problems that you you might have in your life or you have your your child removed that there, there might be i'm speculating now <laughs> some some alternatives um to to ways of supporting women um that, that and acknowledge that they might be having specific difficulties. Something we're all obviously really interested in is the women's experiences and how they perceive the experiences and how they perceive their interactions with the people providing care. And I think it's important to demonstrate the importance of non-judgmental care and how important that actually is for the women and their uh, well-being and their outcomes. So I think that's something else we're really interested in. Um, okay, Dr. Polly Radcliffe and uh, Emma Smith. There, um, any any thoughts? I I guess I think you know it's it's really again it's it reminds me of the the kind of regional variation um, in terms of treatment provision and funding. Um, you know, and this is a kind of another example of of that. I was really yeah surprised that on an issue as important as this, that it sounds like it kind of varies so much. Um, and uh yeah and i guess the other thing of course is is stigma and how important it is to try and to try and challenge it that you know we know that addiction in general um is heavily stigmatized and and that in itself carries a lot of very serious consequences but for for those groups that are, you know there's there's multiple sources of stigma it's, it's even more important i think also i mean just listening to to that clip there i think it just also highlights the the diversity of barriers that women who are pregnant with substance use disorder would face when wanting to access treatment as well. I can imagine that there's a lot of fear surrounding that. And for for a pregnant lady with a substance use problem may be very reluctant to access treatment services as she's just scared that you know the baby will be taken away from her and that she will be that she wouldn't be able to raise a child herself um so yeah i i mean i'm not aware of specialist services for um, alcohol treatment services for for pregnant women but if there aren't any i mean there should be so maybe you could, somebody can enlighten me uh, we did an interview um relatively recently a, a written one on the ssa website with a, a specialist midwife so um it was she sat within the mid midwifery services rather than in the addiction treatment services, but she was a specialist uh, for people uh, for people who use drugs, um, and she talks about the, a lot of the challenges that that um, Polly talked about there. 
uh, you know, about kind of liaising and, and helping people to appointments. A lot of those very practical things as well as kind of advocacy and reassurance. Um, and actually, there's some really interesting notes that she was talking about, about the reassurance that uh, that they had to give to uh, medical staff around methadone and around the importance of opioid substitute therapies. Um, reassuring people that actually sometimes the, the best thing to do was was to maintain rather than to to reduce i'll um uh, we'll put a link to that interview it's a, it was a really fascinating um area um i think the other note on that is that polly's research uh, polly and emma's research um the full interview for that is going to be on the ssa website um and released as a podcast um, but there's is specifically about people who use illicit drugs and doesn't cover alcohol use. Um, not because it's more or less important, but because uh, she felt it was a different population and so warranted its own own study, which I think is uh, is an, is a is a note worth adding, uh, particularly considering we've been talking about alcohol so much uh, on this this episode. Okay, so that just about wraps up our um, February edition of Addictions Edited. It just reminds me to say thank you to Dr. Carol Getty and to Dr. James Morris. Um, please join us uh, next month when we will have more of the same with another special guest who I have to start booking up over a month in advance so I can introduce them at the end of the last podcast. Um, however then, um, grateful to everyone who's appeared on uh, this month's podcast as usual and we will see you later. Uh, goodbye. <laughs>